From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you with three quarters of the Wharton Moneyball team. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen is here. This is Cade Massey. Adi Weiner, our fourth musketeer, is out and about. He may be swinging in here for part of the show before it's all over. Some combination of us are here almost every week of the year. We're coming to you via Zoom, as we have been most of the time since the pandemic hit us in March 2020. We've been doing this thing for more than nine years now. Going to bring you two hours of sports analytics like we do every week. We are going to do our usual show in that we have interview segments in Qs 2 and 3. In Q2, we're going to talk with Micah McCurdy. In fact, we just got off the phone with Micah McCurdy talking hockey analytics, getting us up to speed on the Stanley Cup as they move into this into the finals, the conference finals. The final four teams will be set tonight. And then in Q3, we'll talk to Kevin Mears. Kevin's a longtime friend, not as often on the show, but we've known him for a long time, football analytics guy. And we're looking forward to catching up with Kevin in Q3. We'll do open topics in Q's one and four. And in fact, gentlemen, good afternoon to you. We're recording on Monday afternoon rather than Tuesday, a day earlier than usual. The show will go up on Wednesday, as it always does. It'll go up both on Sirius XM, be replayed a few times over the course of the week. We'll also get the podcast up on Wednesday. But Monday afternoon, a little earlier in the week. Good to see y'all. Curious. Eric looks like he's in the office. Shane's at home. I'm at home. We're spread around. What, gentlemen, in the world of sports has caught your eye? Well, so I started to think about the Sixers game yesterday, and obviously it didn't go well. But I started to think, you know, my first reaction as a fan, and then I'll get to the analytics part, was we have to fire Doc Rivers. We just have to at this point. (laughs) But that's the coach of the Sixers for those listeners that don't know. But then I started to think, wait a second, how close do you have to be to – in some sense, analytically, like how close was he to actually like making the conference finals? They would have then been the favorite against the Heat. Um, Whoever won this series was going to be the favorite in the finals also. 538 had it that way. So one metric of closeness is the Sixers were up with four minutes remaining in game six, three games to two. If if at home, if Jason Tatum doesn't hit four three pointers in the last four minutes of game six, maybe the Sixers win game six. Doc Rivers is the hero. We beat Boston four games to two. Wow, we dominated Boston. And we go on. We're probably maybe we beat the Heat. Let's say we beat the Heat. Now all of a sudden, so Doc Rivers, when people say you gotta tear it down, I started to think we need a measure. And my, you know, I always talked about this. My advisor, one of my advisors, Hal Stern wrote a great paper about comparing closeness between sports, like being up with four points to go in basketball with four minutes to go is the same as being up two and a half runs in a baseball game with this, that, and the other thing. I started to think Doc Rivers was close. Like maybe we shouldn't just tear it all down. And what does close mean in sports? That's what I was thinking about as I was watching the end of the game. Let me react real quickly, and then I'll pitch it to Shane. Because Shane, let me just jump in because I, I happen to have a conversation in a hotel lobby on Saturday that's related to this. There was a gathering in celebration of the University of Chicago's 100-year 
of PhD program, and it was a little conference reunion thing. I ran into a classmate. You mean the $100 million gift for the 100 years? But go ahead. Exactly that thing. The University of Chicago, just the rich keep on getting richer. Um, I ran into a classmate of mine, an economist, Lars Lefkin, who's at BYU. Haven't seen Lars in 20 years, but we were in the same year in the PhD program, and we're standing there talking a little bit about research, and and, and he mentions this paper that he did. He's a broad-minded guy, so he wanders into all kinds of topics and doesn't usually study sports, but he has a management science paper on teams changing their lineups or not as a function of how close their wins or losses were in the previous game. And the idea is, are they learning what they ought to learn in, in a continuous way, or is it purely discrete in which they're probably biased to not do things after close wins and do things after close losses? And not so much whenever, um, uh, and, and not reading the full signal, just reading the discrete signal. Very it's related. Exactly, right. exactly That's a perfect what you're analogy. About. Yeah, so we that, had a close loss in game six. If they had won it, we wouldn't be tearing down the house and the discrete zero one outcome went the other way. And now, as a matter of fact, you've read articles say trade everybody. Everyone's got to go. <laughs> and I, I want to kind of like maybe separate out these two things because are we kind of contrasting a, a, a future uh, for the Sixers where they fire Doc Rivers and replace them with ostensibly a better coach, you know, versus they both fire Doc Rivers as well as basically really kind of, te- you know, kind of essentially rebuild the team as well. And you're you're kind of asking like, can this kind of team is currently configured just, you know, like, uh, you know, you wouldn't have to, I, I mean, you know, arguing that they're already, you know, n- you know, on, on on the verge of greatness wouldn't need much of a kind of coaching change. Again, it's not totally guaranteed you would get a better coach, but, you know, what you didn't need much of a extra kind of positive residual for the new coach versus Doc Rivers to kind of put them over the top. I, is, is that kind of really what you're yeah, asking? I think- yeah, but I think you're pointing out, Shane, is you almost have to treat it like a, something we study a lot, which is a decision tree. The first thing in the decision tree you have to say is, under any coach, any coach, whatever positive residual you might get over Doc Rivers, is this team good enough to win? Let's even forget the finals. Can they be better than the fourth team in the East? They <laughs> haven't beaten Boston, they haven't beaten Milwaukee, and they haven't beaten the Heat in a playoff series since Joel Embiid has been on the team. So can you get better just with that than three other teams in your own conference? Mm -hmm. My guess is the effect size of the coach is not great enough to be able to do that. Now, if you go down that path of the decision tree where it's not, you can't do it. Let's say you can do it by the roster. Great. Hire Mike Budenholzer, who just won uh, who just won with the Bucs, hire Monty Williams, who's two-time coach of the year from the Phoenix Suns. They're both available. Obviously, every year the Van Gundys are still available. Hire any of those coaches, bring them in, hope for the positive residual. If the answer is no, which I believe, then you have to go down the path of, okay, well, are you going to do the process all over again? Like how far away from you? Or is it adding a Damian Lillard? Is it adding one more player and getting rid of some others? So you can treat this, if it were me, I would treat this as a sequential decision problem where you have to answer certain questions first before you can address the next issue. That's my no, view. No, that's true. It's just, you know, again, if I, I don't know if you can really do it sequentially in the sense that, well, if you decide that you have to get both the – coach and the play if if both the coach and the players have to go then i think that 
does suggest a sequential where you have to get the coach, the new coach first, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there it's not like the two kind of processes are independent. A coach's chance of success is tied to the players, obviously. And the coach, uh, an incoming coach that you kind of hope will succeed long-term would probably want a big say in, you know, how that roster is constructed. I, I agree with you. And it's stylistic even. Like, for example, could you imagine, I mean, he's not coming back. Let's go back 20 years. If you said, we're going to hire the next Pat Riley. Okay. But we're going to have a bunch of guys that can shoot the ball and can't play defense. All right. Well, that ain't going anywhere. So not, I agree with you that there's a, definitely an interaction term. You hire a coach, not just for his or her abilities, but they're going to play a certain style of ball. It has to match the players you have and or the players you can bring in. I completely agree. I think it's not any order of the decision tree. So if you, if, if you do, if we were to decide that somehow these players, like one part of the decision to decide whether the players have to go as well or not is, are they kind of being underutilized in a way by the current coaching regime, by Doc Rivers and his staff, in, in, you know, in, in a way that's kind of detectable, quantitative? Like, could you actually kind of do some kind of calculation to how how they, to the extent to which they're underutilized? And that would, you know, A, give you, you know, some amount of the kind of like what, what Eric Bradley, what, 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 uh, you know, Doc Rivers is specifically taking away from the team right now, but it also maybe help suggest what kind of coach they should get the next time through. That for the next, if they were to stick with the same players, what kind of coach they would get this next time around? Though I I, I realize you are in kind of the let's just blow it up camp at this point. Well, you're, maybe you're, maybe, you're, maybe maybe initiate some sort of process. Well, the, what what I'm what I'm. What I'm thinking about as you're talking, Shane, is if we don't have enough on coaching analytics and, you know, you talk about players being underutilized, people talk about that, but they're talking about it from an X's and O's perspective, which is great and helpful and not something I can do. I would like to complement that with the analytics approach, which just says, given the talent that's available, how much is being achieved here? You know what I mean? Like from an experiment of that on the coach, but that's one way of getting at the coach's contribution. From an analysis design point of view, I hope the Sixers decide to just fire Doc Rivers and roll up the exact same thing next year because that's you know that that's the closest we can get to an evaluation. I mean, you know, it's, it's if they blow up the team and fire Doc Rivers, it's not, it obviously muddies any kind of retrospective evaluation of what he was specifically I, I think, doing for the team. Yeah, I agree. I think also Shane last night reinforced to me every week for nine plus years I've been saying the same thing. If your best player on the team is a big man who doesn't have the ball in his hands all the time, you're going to have a problem. And look what happened. How many shots did Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, the two best players on the Celtics, take? Anytime they wanted a shot, they bring the ball up, beat someone off the dribble, and shoot. For for Embiid to get the ball, nothing reinforced to me more than yesterday's game what happens when who's got the ball in their hands when it matters the most. And that's and that's what happened. It also reinforced to me that, you know, the worst trade in the history of the Sixers, again, we had Jason Tatum anytime we wanted him. He was not drafted by the Sixers. We traded the number three pick and, and an unrestricted. We could have Jalen, we could have Jason Tatum and Darren Fox. Those were the picks of the Celtics and the unrestricted Sacramento pick the year after, which is what we traded to move from three to one to get Markel Fultz. That will come down as the worst trade in Sixers history. 
Okay, so but we but it's easy. We don't want to evaluate trades based on what we know happens ex post. We have to evaluate those things based on the time. And and of course, we're pretty skeptical about the value of trading up like that. And so we might have criticized it at the time yeah, for trading up. That's fair. But, but even as highly considered as Tatum was as a prospect, no one you can't say for certain that he's going to turn out the way he did. I mean, he is fully realizing his potential, and many prospects, even top five prospects, don't fully realize their potential. Hey, speaking of these things, I want to point out that the show's going to go up Wednesday, but Tuesday night, the draft lottery happens, the NBA draft lottery. And, you know, this is always of some interest, but especially to probabilists, but um, it's especially interesting this year because the number one, the presumed number one pick is about as anticipated as any player. Probably, probably that's we don't even do that approximately. He's the most anticipated number one pick since LeBron James. No doubt about it. Twenty years, and in fact, some people are like, you know, you put these guys next to each other as nineteen-year-olds, eighteen-year-olds. Who would you really think would be better? Now we're asking a very, we're setting a very high bar. It's not clear that you'd take LeBron over this guy. We're talking, of course, about Victor Wimbanyama. He is a Frenchman. He's playing a couple seasons now in the top professional league over in France. 19-year-old kid, though. He's been playing as a kid. 7'5". He's 7'5", but he's not old school 7'5". He's new school 7'5". Think Durant, but longer, and you're going to be close. And um, it's just, people. he played a couple of games in the G League last fall. He came over to the States, played a couple games, wowed everybody against about as good a competition as he can face before stepping into the NBA. He scored, I think, in those games, 36, 37 points. The man can shoot outside. The man can move. He blocked shots, obviously. This is a very consequential lottery tomorrow night. So it's one of those things where, you know, we're talking about chance. Eric was just talking about, would we be calling for Doc Rivers' head if we were really careful about the chance that just permuted Philadelphia toward the loss column instead of the win column back in game six. So here's chance, fellas, which way do these lottery balls fall tomorrow night? Entire franchises are going to swing on these lottery balls. It's just unbelievable. Let's some review. Poor franchise will get saddled with another big man as their best player. Well, <laughs> this is this is the thing. Eric's going to have to refine his theory as we move to big men who can get their own shots because women Yama is a guy who doesn't need to post up down low and get a pass from somebody with right. a back. That's not the kind of big man he is. And so as the game evolves, Eric's theory might have to evolve. Well, even, even Katie, as you said, um, you know, there's no world where you wouldn't rather have the number one pick and trade it for lots of assets. Suppose someone told you right now, I'm making this up, but let's just say, let's say given the uncertainty around any prospect, suppose the Sixers, let's who went to that number one team and said, you can have the league MVP. Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, and we'll trade them for the number one pick. That's hard to say no to. I mean, that would be hard for a team to say no to. As great as Wembenaya might be, he's, I mean, you have a 28-year-old MVP of the league, and you have Tyrese Maxey, who's also shown to be a great player. I'm saying whoever gets him, it could be game-changing because they may trade him for a lot of asset. Well, I bet they don't. Because I bet I they don't, too. But I, think, but, I, but I think the certainty around is more than just it, – it seems it seems that the certainty around this kid rivals in – the in our lifetimes, we've only heard this kind of certainty around a prospect this young, I think, around Kevin Garnett and LeBron James, I would say. Uh, even Durant – 
there was debate in Durant's year. Who was the big man that came out the same year as Durant and failed? But there was, I mean, some people say, you know, Bill Simmons. He'll say, I was certain Durant was a generational pick. And fine, he was. He, he, he gets credit for that. But there was debate about who they should take with those with that first couple of picks. And there's no debate. And in fact, we're saying, basically by saying this guy might be picked over James, LeBron James, if they were in the same draft, we're saying this is the best prospect in 30 years. You know, I'm looking at these number one picks. You know, I just, I'm just pulled up a list for the last 20 years. So there's LeBron, Dwight Howard, obviously worked great. Andrew Bogut, Andrea Bargnani, Greg Oden. I mean, John Wall, he's good, but I'm just saying Anthony Bennett, you know, See, Ben Eric, Simmons. Eric, Oden, Oden was the Durant year, so they took Oden over Durant. Yeah, all, all I'm commenting, Cade Cunningham's fine. I'm just saying I could list Eric, half of these but, but last Eric, 20. But, Eric, they, all drafts are not created equal, and number one prospects are not thought of equally. There's no. just It's like the quarterback drafts in the NFL. Some years are recognized, and, and actually mostly rightfully so. There's signal, I believe, in people's no, I mean, I think Eric, Eric is teaching us a little bit of humility in terms of number one picks in general. You'd have to kind of convince yourself that this particular prospect is an unconventional number one pick. Like he really is That's right. more predictive. That's right. You know. The only other one in the last 20 years would be even close to this amount of hype was Zion, of course. Mm-hmm. And of course, and by the way, who's lived up to it when he's healthy. And that would be my only concern about a yeah. seven foot five thin yeah. player is is oh, me. yeah, Greg Oden. Who knows what he would have been yeah, okay, injury-free. Okay. All fair. I think it, I think people I, – I don't want to defend this too much, but I do. I want to go to bat on some prospects are seen rightfully as different from other number one prospects. Oden, people knew, was an injury risk. This guy, this skinny little, you know, 7'5", 19-year-old, has played in the top French league with – hasn't missed a game this year, just as an example. He's much more Durant style than Greg Oden style. And that will help this, a lot. And just to wrap up, we're talking about Pistons, Rockets, and Spurs all having the same probability, 14% probability, Pistons, Rockets, and Spurs. But that's still more than half the chance that one of those teams, other than the top three, get the number one pick. Right after that, Spurs are almost as high at 12. I mean, Spurs are 14. Hornets are almost as high at 12 and a half. Trailblazers at 10 and a half. It'd be fun with the pair with Lillard. Lillard, that'd be great. If they don't get them, they might deal Lillard. Lillard. Maury might already be on the phone with those guys. And then the Orlando Magic at nine. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We've got the whole team in here. Well, we have three quarters of the team expecting the fourth. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. This is Cade Massey, Audie Weiner. Probably slide in this quarter. We may not have him for the whole quarter, but we'll have him. We have him on the show this week. You guys can jump in and we love it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests like our guests we're about to jump in with. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We love to hear your suggestions, comments, observations, whatever you got. You can also send us email. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Again, we love to hear from you. We get some interesting stuff from you guys. We read it all. We get as much of it on the air as possible. Q's two and three, our usual interview segments these days and this week as well. Micah McCurdy is back with us this week. Micah, 
creator of hockeyviz.com. Uh, I frequent, maybe overstating it, becoming frequent, becoming frequent, one of our favorite hockey analysts, hockey discussants. He's a, he's a mathematician by training, if I remember correctly. And he's wandered into not just hockey analytics, but data visualization of hockey analytics, which is blending a lot of stuff that we enjoy immensely. And not only do we enjoy it, but we benefit from it. Mike has been a guide for us, especially in this Stanley Cup run. We've been talking about his stuff every week for weeks now. What does Micah's chart say has been the question we've been asking and answering every week for the last, whatever, month or six weeks or something. Micah, good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for making time for me. I'm always a pleasure to be here. And you're coming in from a long way off. It's also kind of, it's kind of a, tickles us to talk with you all the way up in Halifax. We don't have a lot of guests from Halifax. And um, it's always fun to think about that, Micah. Um, listen, man, uh, we're expecting a brokerage fee, given how much we're pimping your work on the site. I, 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 that's okay. That's, that's to be understood, right? Sure. I, uh, I feel like we can, uh, can always work something out there. The, Actually, uh, Micah, can we do, ask you a favor? Uh, since we're statisticians here, um, can we do an event analysis? So every time <laughs> our show is played here on Sirius XM 132, um, can you tell us the traffic that happens on your site? And then can we do an analysis to see what impact we could have, right? Sure. And if the traffic drops, then I can send you a bill. <laughs> we're, we, we believe in variance enough to realize that'd be a risk. We're joking, of course. Um, we, we have Mike on because we love his analysis. Micah, listen, man, um, I'd say, you know, we were chatting a little bit before the show and you said, I hope it's been serving you. It has been serving us. So, for example, I know for me anyway, you it was interesting. I, I didn't follow closely enough how good Carolina was this year. You know, they kind of got lost under what was happening with the Bruins, for example. Um, they don't have, you know, I think of some other players before I think of Carolina Hurricanes players. And so I didn't realize how strong they were. And one of the things your model has been telling us for a long time since the cup began was that those guys were pretty strong contenders. So for that's just an example. Um, what we're talking about, team, hockeyviz.com. You can go there and see what Micah has been doing in, in hockey. He breaks things down in, in great detail, but also backs up and gives us the forest, which is like, okay, what are the odds going forward? He's got a real nice visualization. He tweets it. Micah, give us your Twitter handle real quick. We, I don't have it in front of me. So my Twitter is at ineffective math. The, uh, it's a joke about how my training is in mathematics, as you said earlier, but I could not get the mathematics research job that I dreamed of when I was a child. And so I have to, I have to slum it in the in the world of sports which i've later learned is uh, actually much more fun but, it's a uh, more fun it's a fun slum for dang sure but but i'm but i'm struck by the fact that you fantasized as a child about a mathematics job what was that job exactly research math job what was that actually as when i was a little kid i really wanted to be a physicist and uh and i knew that the kind of physicist i wanted to be was the kind who needed to know a lot of math and so i went about learning all that math uh, and then once i knew it i discovered that actually i liked the math itself a lot better Okay, uh, and it turns out that um, that physics is not exactly the greatest career. Uh, you know, you can do high energy physics, but it's very, very difficult. And it turns out I'm just not that smart. <laughs> okay, so you rolled downhill to the sports and joined the rest of us not so smart people to knock around in the world of sports. But it is a lot of fun. That's for dang sure. It's um, much more social, actually, and that is, uh, you know, people people crack wise sometimes about how you know nerds can be 
ruining the sport and how they're making it all robotic and numeric. And if, if you're coming from the other direction, you know, if you're coming from mathematics conferences where people are perfectly pleasant, but not particularly social <laughs> by, by design, then it's actually a much more welcoming world. People are very friendly. You know, even if people yell a bit more, it's actually very community-based, I find. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, we want to do at least two things. Um, one backward-looking, one forward-looking. Uh, the Western semis got partially set last night with the Vegas Golden Knights knocking out the Edmonton Oilers. Shane won't let me say our Edmonton Oilers because he's a Calgary guy. But uh, they're out. You can, now, you can so. say it now. It hurts less somehow. The <laughs> yeah. 12, it's hurt less for the last 12 hours somehow. Yeah, Shane's been kind of enjoying uh, the way that thing went. But, you know, a, a, a couple of things. You, you have your site is, is mixed. You can get some free stuff and you can pay for some fancier stuff. But one of the things you make available is, is retrospective breakdown. So people can jump on your site, hockeybiz.com, and look at your breakdown of last night's game. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and more broadly, I mean, it's, it's as a casual hockey fan, it's, it's we're sorry to see the star studded alignment of the Oilers go away. It's a fun team um, to follow. And we I go in and look at your details and it's, and it looks like expected goals. If I'm reading it right, Micah expected goals was pretty strongly in the Oilers favor last night. Very I mean, much. And so the swing was dramatic. So, and why don't we just talk about last night and then we can use your analysis to do a little bit of a primer on hockey analytics and then we'll pivot and look forward. But let's understand what happened last night because it's, it's a big deal. One, the Vegas Knights are in the Western Conference Finals for some absurd thing like, what is it, guys? Three out of four years, four out of fourth six and, years? Fourth and I think there's six years of existence. I think that's yep. right. Four and six. I can't believe they've been here six years already. Okay, so they're, they're into the finals. They're going to play the winner of tonight's game against an even – an even younger team, uh, the Kraken and the Stars are playing game seven to see who faces the Knights in the Western Conference Finals. Okay, but they got through the Oilers. Our our friends there are done for the offseason. What happened, Micah? How are we to understand it? So last night, the real short version of the story is that the Oilers dominated more or less from the beginning, and Aiden Hill just took it all away. Their goaltender, the, the Knights. Right, the Vegas goaltender. And and the, which, of course, is not even their main goal. They're, they've been primarily relying on the, on Brossois, this these playoffs. But the you know, and that that as like a simple story can happen to any team on any given night. And mm-hmm. it's not precisely the story of the whole series. Uh, in fact, as a series, I think it, the Oilers goaltending was much more relevant and it was leaky and porous in places. But last night it was the Vegas goaltending that that really sealed the deal. OK, so what, what historically we would have said. You know, he blocked X shots out of so many. And what was that number? And then what can we say with, from a more advanced statistics perspective? So purely from goaltending. Uh, so I, some of the research I've been working on recently uh, suggests that goalies should be given maybe a bit more credit than they've been given in the past for shots that are missed. The, I, you know, there's always this dual aspect that you, you, you fight around with everything in sports. You know, is that because they were good or is that because they were bad? You know, there's always these two things together, right? And and so I, I think of of shooting in hockey as being this primarily dual process where shooters succeed or fail and goalies fail or succeed, you know, perfectly in link. And mm-hmm. and so in particular, but last night, uh, the Oilers were not missing the net very much. They uh, they hit the net on almost all of their shots. And because of that, uh, Hill looks really good, both from a sort of modern perspective 
where you include all those misses and also from a pure, you know, how many, how many shots on goal and how many did he save? Mm -hmm. So I, I still like to think of it though, using expected goals instead of just using plain shots. Just okay. Because I don't, I find it's too coarse to say, oh, you know, he saved 35 shots out of 36. Well, you know, those 35 shots, were they similar to one another? In general, you shouldn't expect that. Um, and, and in particular last night, a lot of the Oilers shots were actually uh, quite, quite good. You know, really good looks from nicely, nice and tight locations from great shooters too. Mm-hmm. So Michael, can you just give us a sense of what expected goals is conditioned on? Like what actual information? Is it purely the location of the shooter? Um, but, or do we have like where the defense is? I don't even know. Let's imagine, let's, let's imagine an ideal analytical world where we literally have data on where everybody is and how much window that person would actually have to shoot through for it to be a goal. I mean, what, what actually is it conditioned on? So it's conditioned on more than you expect, but less than you would like. Um, All right. Which is, I mean, kind of the, that's, that's modern life, right? Um, But in particular, the most important thing that I, that we do have is location. Where are you shooting from? And, and purely on a physical level, this makes such an enormous difference that if you're, if you're shooting from, from point blank, you are going to score much, much more often than if you're shooting from far away, uh, which is independent of all the other stuff. Um, That said, you know, even if I had goaltender location, I would not include it myself uh, because I like to think about um, goaltender performance as being, by definition, post-expected goals. Same as, as I think of shooter talent. You know, a good shooter is one who can take the same shots and score more. Whereas, I, And so I think of the shots themselves, the chances themselves. Uh, the analogy I like to use is that I, I say, well, pretend you just take your glasses off. You know, this this works well because I, of course, am badly nearsighted. And so if I do this, the game just looks blurry. I can still tell what's going on, but I don't know who's who. And so, you know, there you can get an idea of like, how good is that chance before you know who is taking that shot and who is trying to save that shot? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then afterwards you can say, well, okay, now, now I'm going to tell you that it was this goalie and it was that shooter. And then you say, oh, well, in that case, now I expect something different. Mm-hmm. You know, that because you know something about those players, depending on on how much of a fan you are. And so, but the most important thing that is there is shot location. And we don't have defense location. Uh, We we here being people in the public, you know, there's shot tracking data, but that's not publicly available. And so those of us who are slumming it in the public have to deal with some kind of proxies for that. You know, so I use any number of, like, this is the number of players and try to guess where they might be Uh, or, or some cheaper proxies even for, you know, how many layers of, people do both the shooter and the goalie have to work through in order to deal with a shot. And mm-hmm. so, so I don't have the kind of granularity that I would really like uh, to be able to say, you know, yes, I am absolutely taking everything I would could possibly have. Uh, but I feel like with covering the basis of uh, shot location and strength and shot type, you know, backhand, forehand, the, those kinds of things, I think we're getting a fairly decent picture of mm-hmm. the chance quality we're looking at. Mm-hmm. We'll be real. I, 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 I look forward to the kind of the next iteration of this that does include the defensive positioning specifically, because I if I had to kind of pick one thing, one additional thing, I think, to include in that conditioning. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking of the game last night where, you know, I, I feel like Vegas kind of over succeeded on their actual goal scoring. I kind of feel like given the 
frequency of situations they found him in, in part because, you know, just again, looking retrospectively, some of the defense being played by the Oilers on several of those scoring attempts was really poor. Like, you know, not clearing people out in front of the net or not, not kind of tracking people as they went for a rebound. And that's something where defensive conditioning on defensive positioning would maybe kind of give you a little bit of a better idea of like what the real scoring opportunity was on those cases versus, absolutely, you know, yeah, an average defense. Or an above-average sure. defense. Like I said earlier, that if I had goalie positioning, I would not use it. But if I had defense positioning, I would use it in a heartbeat. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Precisely, precisely how is a matter as quite an interesting spatial question. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, we'd love to have that. Well, I'm sure you're thinking about it because I'm sure you're going to have it eventually, and it'll add it'll add some more predictive quality um, to to what we're doing. Let's talk about one of your analyses just to help us a little bit understand. It's your it's your expected goal breakdown again for the game last night. So the Kings win five two. Of course, one of those was an empty netter, I believe, at the end of the game. So two games spread, three games spread in one direction. Your expected goals calculations takes it two and a half goals in the other direction. Edmonton four point three expected goals, Vegas one point seven, and so we're talking about a four and a half, five and a half goal swing, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, and you and you break this down, you stack up players, you you apportion this out to players, which is neat. And it seems really helpful in, in, in the big enterprise, which is let's understand who's performing well, how to build teams, that kind of thing. How is it you break it down to players? And when I look at this chart, and again, this is a chart that's available. People can jump in. You give your retrospective stuff. Am I thinking about it right? So some of these guys score goals and still don't get a full goal of the expected goal credit for it. Some guys get half goal credits for that. Some guys get 0.1. And I assume that means, you know, kind of what you were just talking about. Um, the situation sets up either poorly or well for a goal, so you're not going to give one guy credit when it when it was just kind of there. I, but can you break that down for us a little bit? And can you tell us how to read these charts, these expected goal charts, where you're apportioning credit to players? For sure. And so I, I'm always a little bit careful to put anybody's name next to anything because the, it's inevitable that it will be interpreted as credit specifically. And so in, in this case, I, I've tried to be a little bit gentle about it, you know, not make really strong distinctions between the different layers for the different players. Because what I want the overall effect is just who had more as a team. You know, I still yep. think of shots as being created by teams. Okay. And so the the what's really important is, is what team you play for. And so then the name gets put next to people's shots, just according to who took those shots. I see. Okay. But so that's really a shot breakdown. Got it. That's right. I still think of it though, as being team generated, you know, the team yep. gets the look. This is part of why a lack of shooting talent in your depth, especially can really sink you because if you generate a good chance and it happens to fall on the stick of a person who's not a good shot, you don't as a rule, have the option of just passing that look up. You know, your coach is going to scream at you. Your fans are going to scream at you. You're all, you know, shifts just aren't that long. One shot per shift is pretty typical. So, you know, you can't be passing up good looks. It's not at all the same as in basketball where, you know, one of the things that a coach is maximizing in a basketball team is, are we making sure that our good shooters are taking the shots that we generate? And Uh if they are, that's the coach's fault. We got to make a new scheme, a new system so that we can get a higher percentage of our good looks in our good shooters' hands. But in hockey, that's that's simply not an option. And Micah, so you, real, real so, quickly, let's help us understand how much of the variance 
is contributed by the situation versus by the player, because you've been emphasizing the former to this point, but now you're kind of emphasizing the latter. How can we, how can we, for example, understand a player like Dreisaitl, who's known as a sharpshooter? He, he just got knocked out. He's one of the reasons we hate to see Edmonton go because he get, gets knocked out. How, how, you're a mathematician, you're an analyst. How can we think about the value he creates by just more productively converting those situations than the average player? So I, I, that's the most important single quality a player can have in, in analytic value. I'm, I'm working on a stat, which I haven't published yet, which will actually try to equate all of these different things. You know, this is how much you drive the puck over the blue line. This is how much you draw penalties. This is how well you shoot. How can we put them all in the same currency? So that's still in development. But, but relatively, I can already tell you that that shooting, that finishing talent is the most valuable thing in the entire league. And Dreisaitl is at, if not the very top, he's in the top handful of guys. Uh, okay. And you, you, know, you just look at how many goals he scored. Uh, looks like not counting empty netters, three, four, six goals on 3.2 expected, mm -hmm. uh, plus a couple posts. You know, that's an extremely strong showing. And there's no question that, that the Oilers um, aren't particularly deep as a team, but they did not lose this particular playoff series on account of Leon Dreisaitl, just the opposite. They lost it despite his heroic efforts. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you think that is understood? And, and I guess the, my instinct is that in general, I expect conversion to be overcredited relative to creation. I guess I've, I've carried around a hypothesis for a while across all sports that says we, we over-attribute, um, we over-credit players who convert um, and we under-credit players who create opportunities for conversion. So I agree with that. And I think that part of, part of my motivation to do the work I do is to try to reapportion that differently. Um, I'm always a little bit dicey with trying to give out, you know, carefully apportioned credit in single games. That's that's very, very difficult to do. You know, on a season level, I can say, well, this guy's finishing talent is this. I measured yeah. it with a model. I know it's my best stuff. And, yeah. you know, that's a whole season or even two seasons. Right. So that you can really so that you can really look at, you know, this guy took hundreds of shots. And whereas you can, you know, you can get lucky on five shots out of 30. And that's enough to dominate a playoff series. Well, you know, Micah, is it actually just as tough to pin down their contribution to creating opportunities? Because that then is more of a team thing, right? So in that sense, it might even be harder to show that precisely. Yeah, I, I use a similar kind of horizon of at least a season, if not two, to, mm -hmm. to get that kind of data as well. That's actually a little bit more robust, though, because you're getting more data more frequently. You know, every shift is right. giving you data there. You know, did you generate no shots? Well, we're going to mark that down. Whereas mm -hmm. your shooting talent, if you took no shots, well, then we don't know. Yeah. Micah, on the creation side, are you, are you beyond merely like um, opponent adjusted plus minus, or is that the level of the analysis? Uh, it's sort of a fancy version of opponent adjusted plus minus. You know, so it's still, you know, you put a, a teammate terms, individual terms in a regression model with opponent terms. Uh, but then also some of the aspects that are affecting the way that teams generate or don't generate shots. Um, include score effects, some coaching terms, um, the some period effects, like especially in hockey where you actually have to, the rink plays differently in the second period because the, yeah. the benches don't move, but the nets do. You know, that okay. those kinds of terms, they have a, that has about a 10% boost um, in expected goals. And so like we're, we're getting a fair bit of decorated stuff to get some okay. more fidelity, but at its core, it's still um, weighted, playoff opponent adjusted plus minus. 
yeah, so the, yeah, the rating yeah. is expected gold. Okay. One of the things I remember being told by, it might have been by Namita, Namita Nandikumar, before she went to hockey. She had to shut up about hockey once she got there. But when she's floating between Penn and hockey, she was with the Eagles at the time. I think she told me it's sobering and shocking how many observations you need before plus minus is, is stable. So presumably, as the more decorated it is, the quicker you can get it to stabilize. But it, it still sounds like you need years to really get a very stable read on a player. Yeah. I I mean, so first of all, if Namita says it, it's always right. That's just a great way to live your life. Um, but also, uh, like I know from my own my own research that that she's exactly right. That I'm I'm looking at around around a thousand minutes of a player on the ice before I can say anything that I don't feel the need to put a public caveat of who knows. <laughs> Okay, just as a reminder to the hockey unwashed, um, that, a shift is about a minute. A shift is what? So a thousand minutes is how many shifts? Yeah, the shift is about forty-five to fifty seconds. Jeez. So, and and so Jeez. roughly, like if you look at if you're watching a hockey team play, especially if you're only interested in five on five minutes, which is structurally most interesting, you're looking at about a fifth of a season before you can say, you know, anything that's okay. not very tentative. And, which okay. is, on the one hand, that like feels like a failure, but on the other hand, I, I'm increasingly sure that that's just grappling with the sport as it is. You know, the rules are as they are, and you can pretend that you can measure it better than you can if you like, but the variance is part of what you're measuring. Yeah, so you can't, that's right. You can't pretend that it's less than it is. That's just okay, okay, Michael, but there's, this, there's a modeling challenge here that is another very general, a general challenge, and that is the bigger the sample you need, that means the longer period of time you have to collect data the bigger concern you have that the world is changing, that the more recent data isn't the same as the older data. And so how do you think in hockey and your, in your modeling, how do you handle that at least potential non-stationarity? How quickly do you decay the past? How do you estimate how quickly you decay the past? So, I mean, I have an aging model, which is for the moment still separate from the other models. So I'm not looking at aging factors over the course of the length of time that I'm trying to estimate player abilities. You know, I'm estimating the aging curves after the fact using those estimates. And so we're hoping for some sort of quasi stationarity there. Um, and one of the one of the encouraging things is that if that were badly wrong, uh, then I would see it. Um, you know, I, I'd see things start to break for that reason, because I'm making those assumptions and I'm not seeing that, which is already quite interesting. There's an effect. Okay. We actually touched on it very briefly when we were talking last time. There is an effect where aging happens to players all at once, where where they there's a, an equilibrium effect where players know what they need to do to get the best out of themselves. And frequently, once they can no longer do it, they, they often just stop entirely. Okay. And okay. so you do get, so you do see, you know, statistically, you have to model that in a different way. You know, you have to model that as almost two separate processes. There's the aging process, and then there's the, I might die in the hockey sense where I might no longer be able to appear okay. on the just to, just to Just to make sure I, I understand what you're saying and reminding me about our future, our, our previous conversation, I believe you're saying that, yeah, the, the players lose some ability or some, their skills change over time, but then they compensate and play differently so that they essentially maintain the level of play. And then at some point, they can't compensate anymore and they kind of fall off a cliff. I have to just, let me just interject for a second. I thought what Cade was talking about, excuse me if I'm just to, if I'm a little confused, maybe our listeners are. I thought the aging that Cade was talking about was the aging of the data, which is that 
if you to get a certain number of minutes, you need to go back in time a certain amount, which means that there might be non-stationarity. But, Micah, you seem to be talking about the aging of players. I just want to understand which aging you're talking about here. He, he's what? blending them together. He's saying, what? I'm not worried about your kind of aging. I'm only going to worry about my kind of aging. And I can find that in the short period of time that I need, your kind of aging doesn't matter. Something like that. Uh, well, in some sense, the two kinds of aging are the same kind of aging, really. You know, the data is old. And so why is it relevant or not relevant? The only way that it could fail to be relevant, really, is because it no longer represents the player who's going to play tomorrow. And the only reason that it wouldn't represent that I player see. is that he's no longer the same player as he was. And which is which is aging. That's very interesting. I don't think I've ever heard those two. Maybe maybe Shane knows. I don't know that I've ever heard those two literatures on non-stationarity and aging, which you could view non-stationarity as a form of aging. I'm never I'm not sure I've ever heard those two literatures fused together before in that way. Shane, do you have any experience with that? I don't even know if it's just a, a, a more just kind of almost a linguistic how you describe non-stationarity like when we think about you know on the da- when we think about non-stationarity on like the second half of a career as this aging pro like where aging is the mechanism driving whatever non-stationarity we see whereas you know non-stationary say in the first half of a career we'd be talking about development or like you know how a player kind of progresses in their like kind of de- you know and it would still be describing non-stationarity it would just be like a uh, you know we have we have a different term and a different kind of mechanism for how we label it. Yeah, I think that's important. I think you you want to, and maybe maybe if I was even doing what I'm doing even better, I'd be able to isolate out those those aspects. You know, what is learning and what is just getting stronger? You know, versus then what is cognitive decline, physical decline, recovery decline? You know, all that sports science stuff that we just call quote aging. You know, you really mm-hmm. want. You really want all of those things together, but then you want them separated out if you want to be really sophisticated. Well, the, the, you're tackling one of the big known issues of non-stationarity, which is the age curve. And then we always have the questions. It's always a question like, is there non-stationarity within a season? And we might say, well, it's more about team level than player level. That's one reconciliation. So for, for practical purposes, players don't change within season, even though a team might change within season. But speaking well, of teams changing within season, let's talk in the time that we have remaining about what we have in front of us for the Stanley Cup playoffs. So you're let, we can review your numbers real quickly. I believe you like Carolina over um, Florida at, I don't know, not quite two to one. And I think you like Vegas over the Kraken Stars winner or something like that. Or actually, you like the Stars over the Kraken tonight at something like that as well. Can you tell That's us right. what you anticipate going forward? And, and maybe a little bit of a pep talk on the Carolina Hurricanes team. So that is right. That's what I expect. And uh, and if if Dallas go through as I think they as they're more likely to, uh, I think that will be they'll be 57, 58 percent favorites against Vegas. And I think it'll be roughly around that the other way around. If um if it's Seattle that goes through instead. I see. Uh, OK, just because I'm I'm not convinced again because of data horizons, despite Brubauer playing very well these playoffs, I'm not convinced he has the track record okay. um, to really to really deserve more than that. As for Carolina, the who are who are the favorites right now, I think, and will be no matter what happens tonight, they part of why maybe they slide under your radar, like you were mentioning earlier, is that they don't have a really star-driven player team profile. They they play extremely strong systems game where uh, and that's entirely or not entirely, but mostly due to Rod Brindamore, 
who's one of the stronger coaches in the league. So uh, can, I, I guess um, with, with looking at kind of the fact that you give Carolina, you know, the two thirds in the next series versus one third, what is what, what's kind of the most you would ever give a hockey team? Like uh, for how, how much would you give going into a series probabilities for a particular hockey team? I feel like two thirds is already kind of at the edge of what I would be comfortable giving. But I, I was just wondering. And I guess I as a follow up to that question, what did you give Boston against Florida in the first round? Well, so purely in general, I've never seen a, a playoff series probability above 75%. Um, I'm not even certain I've seen one over 70%. Right, right. Uh, um, as for Boston and Florida before that got started, uh, that was 77%. Okay, fact, so that's, so that's probably about the peak of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much that's got to be the top. You know, they're, they they absolutely deserved every inch of the favorite that they got from all quarters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, spe- well, speaking of that, I mean, then then can, what would it, what is your analysis of Florida? How much of it might be some kind of non-stationarity? How much persistence can we expect if they take down Boston with only a 23% chance? What would they need to do to take down Carolina looking at a 33, 35% chance? Well, it's momentum. We know it's not non-stationary, but please, Micah, answer the question. <laughs> they, it'll be a very different ask. You know, even if they've done a harder job already to take down Boston, it'll be a very different, different job that they'll have in front of them if they're going to take down Carolina. Um, I was actually kind of hoping for Carolina to play Boston because I thought that would have been a really fun matchup. But Florida, Carolina is going to be fun anyway. The part of they were very fortunate to win against Boston um, at all. The, they got a lot of sequencing luck where the goals that they scored fell in just the right spots when they absolutely needed them. Um, uh, you can imagine that I don't have a very high opinion of what other people call a clutch. I think it's mostly made up after the fact. Uh-huh. Um, but they, they did extremely well by that measure. Um, well, so hold on. So hold on. You're, I, I, I don't think I've heard sequencing luck in hockey. So we think about it in baseball and it's real obvious in baseball, like a couple of singles before a dinger are much more helpful than a couple of singles before a strikeout. So what is sequencing, but it doesn't add up in the same way in hockey. So what, what do you mean by sequencing luck in hockey? So I use, I use any kind of permutation sensitivity to events uh, and, and call it sequencing for the same reason, um, which is, I know is a little bit disingenuous. For instance, in hockey, we like I've documented score effects where teams actually play differently because of the score. So we're having, you know, causal effects where the desired outcomes are changing the processes. But Okay, so, so give us an example of the Panthers sequencing luck against um, against the Bruins. So the had they scored the goals that they scored at different times in the game um, or in different games, they would have... Now, in, in different games, it makes sense to me. But tell us about how scoring at different points in time, because to the to the Rube, this is shocking because a goal is a goal is a goal. Oh, no, sorry. I meant between games, not in, inside individual games. I don't I think you can make anything sensible about, you know, because there's no there's no winning inside a game. Whereas okay. in baseball, you can win a run. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You have multiple outcomes that lead to a run or don't. But in hockey, you don't have that, that same quality. I mean, I guess maybe if I had an incredibly subtle model and I could I could, you know, a breakout followed by a stretch pass versus the opposite somehow. You know, that, that gets even harder to, to define, but maybe you could someday. 
But the way we should think about this here, as you're describing, then, is that the simple way to think about it is the Panthers, you know, snuck all their wins by slightly, and then the Bruins won the way we expect them to win with more in a more pronounced way. So the goal difference, I don't, I don't know what the goal difference is. Or, or again, under, a sob, or, uh, under a sob sh- assumption that all the goals that the Panthers scored kind of represents their overall goal scoring rate, how did those things cluster to lead to wins as opposed to not, I guess, basically, yes. right? And in fact, a, an even stronger example is the way that Toronto um, got past Tampa in the first round, where where they, I mean, and, and the most obvious example of it is overtime goals, you know, because they're such high leverage and they don't yeah. have the same value as single goals do uh, elsewhere. In fact, that technically that could be an example of, of, uh, of an in-game sequencing effect. Yeah, right. For sure. Okay. Well, we saw a lot of overtime hockey there for a while. It's been a little quieter in recent weeks, but um, maybe we have some more in front of us. Listen, Micah, we have to let you go, but it's always a pleasure, man. You're slowly dragging us into um, a better awareness of hockey, and you're helping us appreciate the playoffs as we go with the analysis that you're doing. Appreciate, appreciate you making time for us. Pleasure's all mine. Micah McCurdy, creator of HockeyBiz.com, has some great tools up there for you to check out. HockeyBiz.com also tweets at at Ineffective Math, at Ineffective Math. It's Micah McCurdy, frequent guest on this show, especially this time of year. That's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome into the second hour of Wharton Moneyball. In this quarter, Q3, Another guest segment we have onto the show, Kevin Mears. I talk to Kevin now and then. I'm not sure if we've talked to Kevin on the show or not. We've had Kevin Mears on the show before. I'm delighted to have you finally. No, it's uh, my first time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Kevin is has been and is now working on the frontier of football analytics on the, on the professional side, especially. Um, Kevin is a two-time Harvard grad, despite... My best efforts and the best efforts of other well-intended folks, we couldn't pry him away from Harvard as he went back for his graduate degree. He has an undergrad and an MBA from Harvard. I think he got caught up in the pandemic. I think about it even more time at Harvard because of the pandemic. But before going back for B-School, Kevin worked for a couple of football teams. He interned coming out of school. This is a good story for those of you who are into analytics and how do you get started my memory is the Cowboys spotted Kevin Mears based on his work with the Harvard Collective, just like undergrads putting papers on the internet, doing good work, talking about stuff. He did good enough work that an NFL team's like, hey, this Mears kid might be worth talking to. And they hire him as an intern. And then that whole crew moves to Cleveland when Haslam buys the Browns and they bring Mears on full time as they built out what is still probably the biggest analytics group in the NFL. So that's Kevin before he goes to grad school. Then after grad school, he rolls into zealous analytics. We have zealous folks on the show, you know, seemingly every quarter they're running one of the best shops in the sports analytics space. Kevin is there helping build out their football practice. He's got the fancy title director of product and strategy. Maybe that's what he got out of Harvard. No good. Negotiated a good title. Good job title. Kevin, great to see you, man. What What are you thinking about these days? Where are you? What are you doing? Yeah, Cade. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I'm here in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, stayed local uh, after grad school, um, but really focused on building out Zealous's football platform. And we're really excited to bring 
the kind of uh, player tracking related insights and development that you've seen from a lot of people at Zealous who've worked in sports like basketball, soccer, and baseball to the NFL? So I think of Zealous as having kind of its first foothold was in baseball, of course, with Doug and Dan coming out of that world. But then y'all have recruited in this talent from all these other sports. It's this neat challenge you have on the football front to go in with a new product, try to sign a new team. You've got all this phenomenal expertise behind you, but it hasn't been deployed in football before. So how has this gone for you so far? And what has been what has been the pitch? If we're an NFL team, if we're a GM and you're giving us your best pitch, what's what's the pitch? You've never done any football work before, Kevin. Come on, who's Zealous? Zealous is a baseball shop. So the the fundamental pitch is that every team is looking for new competitive advantages and we are uniquely positioned to provide new competitive advantages to football clubs because of our experience in player tracking and that play, taking on player tracking projects is really challenging for every front office and for football front offices specifically because they're generally not as big as some of what you see in the MLB and the NBA. They constantly have coaches or scouts knocking on their door. It's really hard to carve off time for the kind of very heavy lift, but very high impact projects that you can get from digging into player tracking data. And at Zealous, we don't have that same kind of pressure. And so we're able to take on those kinds of projects and deliver real advantages to our partner clubs. So where are we in the in the evolution of player tracking? You, five, five years ago, it was exceedingly raw. We barely had models to even think about it. Some of your, your people, Luke Bourne, one of the founders of Zealous, has been a, on the frontier of that for a while. But that meant that a team that wanted to use the latest and greatest technology and data, player tracking, would kind of be having to start from scratch. And it's hard to do as a one-man, two-man, one-person, two-person shop. My sense is that it has evolved. There are now vendors who use those data and sell, you know, processed data. They sell analyses. So maybe teams can start taking advantage of all that technology without having to have all the manpower, person power inside the building. Where are we in that arc? And um, how do we think about what Zealous contributes given where we are in that arc? Yeah, so we're definitely not in the 2016-2017 phase where we're trying to wrap our minds around like what is even in this data? Do we think it's any good? Is there any value in here? We're we're well past that. And I think uh, a lot of that credit is due to Mike Lopez and the group at the NFL League office uh, for initiatives like the Big Data Bowl that have been able to, at least in the public realm, really push things forward. Um, but in, from my position at Zealous, I get to talk with a lot of teams around the league uh, about a little bit, and they'll share a little bit of what they're doing or what they've done. And we're in the spot now where teams that have a serious analytics function do have some tracking-based internal models, uh, but they aren't at quite the kind of level of granularity or uh, specificity that of the R&D people would really like. And they're constantly the thing that they wish they were spending more of their time on. But again, it's just, it's a challenge to carve off that time to, to dig into those kinds of data. So this is, now you've said this twice. And just to be clear, you're, you're saying that these, these um, most 
most analytics shops and probably all in the NFL are still heavily taxed with just daily, weekly um, demands. And what you're talking about is the need for kind of an R&D function. And the way that works in a small shop is that some guy just stays late. He kind of does it on his own, more or less. Every now and then they get a project in the off season that they can you know, focus on for two weeks. Most of the R&D is hard to get to, especially until you have a much bigger shop and, and virtually no teams have that. So that's one of the things you're emphasizing here. You also said in passing that you said something like teams that all, almost all teams who are serious or have a serious analytics endeavor have some kind of player tracking product or model. How how much of the league is that these days? And you and you and some of your competition are kind of uniquely positioned to answer that question because y'all do talk to more or less all the teams. So what's your sense of if we take that as the measure of sophistication and investment in analytics across the NFL? if they have something internal that's on player tracking, how many of the teams would you say fall into that camp? Uh, have, I mean, guess there, there are still degrees here where having something can be pretty simple uh, versus some of the more uh, complex models that, uh, that we think about a lot at Zealous. But I would say at least half of the clubs um, are at a place where they're doing at least some work with raw tracking data and turning that into wow. uh, reports that are going to uh, that are going to decision makers. Uh, I think there's a lot of variance across that, but um, you know, we're football analytics has grown a lot since uh, I started back in the Cowboys at the Cowboys, like you mentioned. Uh, the median group is now around five or six people, including data scientists and engineers. And so that's still small enough that it's really challenging to build out new tools, but it is enough to uh, to carve off some of that time. Okay, that's 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 a nice little update in and of itself. That's a bigger number than I would have thought. Um, and you are describing it, defining it kind of broadly. But that's that's what that's the real world of data science. You need more than just the analysts. You have to have the engineering people as well, um, especially especially in a in a professional sports team where part of the enterprise is it's not just getting the data in shape for the analyst. It's then getting it back into the system for the users. They've got, everybody's got these, these, these big systems where they have all the data on personnel and unless it's in there, it's not going to be used. And so getting it in there in a good usable way, that's an entirely different enterprise. And so now we're talking about engineers, we're talking about data analysts, and then we're talking about, again, some kind of engineering to get this stuff usable. I think Eric was going to try to get in here. Yeah. I was just going to ask Kevin, what do you see if you, you know, without giving away any, I'm not asking you for any secret sauce. What are the two or three biggest problems that teams are addressing with motion tracking data? So either from your point of view, you guys, you said when you opened the show that you were working on your dashboard, what would be on the dashboard that would be most useful? And two, can you tell us what are one of those big problems they're working on that their internal team can't seem to handle? So in, as far as what teams have tackled, I think the m- most common place that uh, teams have already built out something are around uh, measures of player speed, acceleration uh, for defensive linemen, their speed off the line of scrimmage, those kinds of things. If, uh, for the are, purposes of their current players or drafting players or some combination of both potentially? So mostly for NFL players, there is starting to be more and more college level tracking data or pseudo tracking data using computer vision to extract 
the XY coordinates of college players that is impacting draft decisions, but that is still relatively new to the scene. Uh, so mainly I'm talking about things at the NFL level from the zebra data that teams are getting, <clears throat> that teams are getting. And uh, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about what we're developing internally, but I think uh, kind of complementing those measures of uh player athletic ability are more so measures of player performance and how uh, players are impacting the, the outcomes of plays. Uh, and that is a, a whole, there are kind of a whole host of problems there that are interesting to tackle. Oh, well, so can you, can you talk about just a few examples of those problems? Because presumably they're like little, we see little models from, you know, Michael Lopez's competitions from Brian Burke's annual projects, little models like, you know, is the edge rusher defeating the offensive lineman to get to the quarterback? Is the DB staying close to the receiver? Is the receiver getting separation? Are these the kinds of problems you're talking about? How a player is affecting performance on the field? Yeah. So those are, those are all examples of like singular projects that would go into our platform but one of the challenges is to make sure that all of these systems are uh, in sync with each other. Uh, because if you answer, if you try to answer each of these problems individually, you end up having weird cases where things aren't aligning the way they should. And mm -hmm. so building the system in such a way that uh, those individual models are working well together is its own challenge. So an example of a way in which I think you, you're your meaning is you might see an edge who's consistently beating his guy, but it's not translating into team performance. And it doesn't make sense because you're just looking at that guy in isolation. But it turns out that all those secondary, the defensive secondary, they're not they're not doing their job. And if they can't do their job, it doesn't matter if he gets the quarterback quick. If the, if the guys are open, the ball comes out or flip it around. A guy who seems like he's got good coverage, if the rush isn't getting home then the defensive performance might not, you know, be correlated to that good coverage because it doesn't matter how good you are for two and a half seconds. If the guy has 3.7 seconds, your, your man is going to get open. Is this the right way to think about it? Yeah, that's one of the ways that we think about it, where uh, on the one hand, you do have these more individual matchups of one pass rusher versus one or two blockers or uh, one coverage player on a receiver, but those interact in important ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so Kevin, can you give us a sense of what tends to be, since you guys are, especially in your job, you have to think very customer or in a customer oriented way, what tends to be most impactful with teams? Is it visuals like great graphics and display? Or is it, you know, can you show them output of models? You know what I mean? I don't literally mean output of models, but I mean, is it, you know, coefficients or do you always have to bring things to life with visuals and graphics? So the way we approach this is we are really trying to give internal R&D staffs better tools because they're going to be the ones at the end of the day communicating with decision makers. And so we're, we end up interfacing most with pretty technical customers who understand how to take data and put it into a visual or a dashboard that uh, their particular GM or coach is going to think, find most effective. So mm -hmm. kind of the way we end up delivering our results uh, is a pretty intermediate step between the raw data and the decision maker. I see, which it could include our Python code or whatever you guys are writing in, which could be, you know, algorithms to do X, and then they put it into their stack to so that they can make it part of their internal processes. 
Yeah, we try to deliver things as granularly as we can so that they can customize it and build it out exactly the way their team is going to care most about it. Got it. Kevin, from a persuasion perspective, you know, if you're selling into the analysts, that's one language. If you're selling into general manager, at least most general managers, that's a different language. If you're convincing a coaching staff that some tool is going to be useful, that's a third language altogether. Are are you now trilingual or are you having to use or do you get to narrowly traffic in more one of those languages at a time? It's definitely a complex channel. Um, and we end up speaking a bit of all three. It depends a little bit on the team context of who within the building is going to be the most interested in using our tools. But it's one of the uh, places that I can draw on my experience from, from Cleveland and from Dallas, where I'm used to having those conversations with uh, more traditionally minded uh, football executives and coaches. So now, honestly, Kevin, how different is the lab? Literally the language you're using if you're talking to a traditional general manager versus the head of R&D, you know, down the hall. It's much less technical, but I think one of the strengths of what we're doing at Zealous is, and one of the benefits of player tracking is really enabling uh, analysts to speak the natural language of football. I think one of the biggest challenges with football analytics in earlier eras has been we end up with these kind of convoluted statistics that mean something to us, but are very hard for uh, a scout or a coach to wrap their head around versus mm-hmm. just to, to go back to like uh, ath- some of the athleticism measures that teams have built, you know, a coach or a scout is going to understand a defensive lineman's ability to get off the ball and get up to speed quickly. That's a very natural concept for them to think about. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're able to communicate in a language like we're able to naturally communicate in a language that they're more used to to speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kevin, I want to hear a little bit of your thoughts on your time with the Browns. Um, they are they have been known for a long time as one of the most invested in analytics, and you know we we, we everyone knows about Paul De Podesta, who's been working there um, for some time now, and you know. Crazy comes out of there, and Crazy is one of the, the actually the real first analytics GM. Um, and yet, they don't always make the most you know seemingly analytics based decisions. And uh, so, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on how how can we better understand what's going on with Cleveland and what does it tell us about the state of football analytics in the NFL right now? But let me start with a single quote, which I don't think I don't think he's going to mind my giving you. And it comes from Ken Kobash, your your buddy, longtime buddy at Cleveland. Ken told me one time he was one of the first full-time analysts in the league. And he told me that sometimes new folks to the league call him and ask him for advice when they come in. And he said, I've come to believe this is Kobash talking that if I didn't do it all over again, I might not try to give anybody any analysis inside the building for like a year. I'm going to go a year without trying to get, tell them anything. I'm just going to get to know them. I'm going to build a relationship. And on the one hand, this is, you know, it sounds a little extreme. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of truth in that kind of thing. And I'm asking you about your thought on this because now you're in a position where you don't have the luxury of going to lunch with the guys down the hall, you know, every day, or, or that, that you, you can't quite do the intensive relationship building, yet you still got to sell. You still have to persuade. So how do you think about this? This is a, a general challenge for us in the analytics community. You've done it inside the building. 
And now you're doing it from outside buildings. And I'm curious how you think about Kobash's advice there and how you've adopted it or not adopted it in the job you're in now. So when you're inside the building, the personal relationship does go a really long way. And there's definitely some real truth in what in what Ken's describing, uh, which isn't always the case with Ken. But uh, in, <laughs> in this one, he's, he's probably onto something um, where... Yeah, when you're kind of labeled as the the quant, uh, it takes a little bit of time for people to get used to your presence. And it really does help to just spend time sitting in a coach or a scout's office, watching film with them and talking about football the way they're used to talking about football. And then you're then able to bring them when you're when you do bring them some analysis you have that camaraderie to build on and you, and they also understand that you're not, you're not the spreadsheet mm-hmm. and that you're uh, a person who understands the game, who is just approaching it from a different angle. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's definitely a nugget of truth in, in what Ken's saying. And now outside of the building, those personal connections still are really helpful uh, on a number of different levels. Um, one is just having built out a network of people who do work in R&D in football, and it enables us to have a good understanding of where the league is overall. Um, and still having those connections to like scouts and coaches that I used to work with also helps me just understand when a model output I'm seeing is just off and I need to be fixing something or digging into a certain player because this guy is just way higher than he should be. Um, but as far as building trust goes, one thing that we do differently at Zealous than I think many other places do is, uh, we provide full model specifications to the teams that we work with. So in order for them to really trust what we're doing, we understand how hard it is to trust something that you don't, when you don't fully understand how it works. And so to get around that, we literally provide the the technical details behind the metrics that we provide uh, so that they really understand the nuts and bolts of what's going into here. What are we conditioning on? What are we not conditioning on? So that they know how to use it. And if they want to build on top of it, they know everything they need to. Oh, it sounds it sounds risky. Uh, you're not in a lifetime relationship with these people. They might take it. They might go do something else. They might share it with somewhere. Maybe you have confidentiality agreements of some kind. How do you manage all of that? Obviously you're doing part of, partly of that to build a relationship because you think everybody's going to benefit, but there's risk there. So how do you manage the risk? Yeah, I think uh, we, we trust our partners. So confidentiality is, you know, hopefully not something we'll, that we'll need to, to get into for contract. But what it does do is it forces us to continue to innovate. It forces us to continue to develop because uh, at the end of the day, we're, we are giving our partners, you know, what they need. If they wanted to replicate our platform, they could, but part of our value proposition is again, coming back to like, we're increasing your capacity beyond what you uh, would likely be able to do with just your internal team. And so Mm -hmm. the most important thing is that they're able to trust what we're giving them so that they can use it to impact their team. And so Mm -hmm. we're willing to make that trade every time. Okay. We're talking to Kevin Mears. Kevin is the director of product and strategy at Zealous Analytics. He's heading up their new football practice. Kevin uh, is 
relatively recently out of the Harvard Business School with an MBA, but he worked before then at the Dallas Cowboys and, the, and then a number of years at the Cleveland Browns. Kevin, um, you know, when when spatial data hit us, we knew that it was going to be the next big thing and would be for a while, even though no one knew in the beginning what form it would take. Like we we knew, we said for a fact, five years from now, there are going to be new statistics that we can't even name right now. They're going to be really useful based on these data. We knew it would evolve that way. And it's still evolving. It's a long way to go. But if you were to stand here now and point to the future of football, some some frontier that we're not thinking about right now, or at least we don't have well-defined right now, what would be that frontier? Like what what what's another frontier beyond spatial or adjacent to spatial that you think is going to emerge over the next few years? I guess adjacent to spatial and a frontier that we're thinking about pretty actively at Zealous is uh, the player kinematics world and biomechanics. Uh, what, can, what, is, can, what does the word kinematics mean? So studying player movement and in particular uh, data around not only a player's XY location on a field or a court, but where are their limbs, where are their joints and how are those moving over time? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in baseball and basketball, that data is here. So a team can study exactly how a pitcher's mechanics uh, impact how he delivers the ball or how a basketball player's shooting form impacts the trajectory of his shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're a ways away from that in football. Uh, and there are a lot of challenges with that, just given the camera angles that we're all used to, to actually be able to identify where uh, a player's body is on the field. Uh, but I also have a pretty good trust in technology and, and in yeah. technology's ability to overcome that hurdle. So, thinking so ahead, Kevin, yeah. can, we, can we go, um, can we go in a couple of details there? Cause it sounded to me like you talked about two different things. One, we've, we, we, we've, we've had a number of people on the show over the, over recent years on biomechanics. And it seems especially relevant to these sports where there's this, repeated motion, especially if the player initiates the motion. So it's, I think of it as starting in golf, but then baseball has blown up and, and both hitter and pitching um, court, in quarterbacks. There've been a lot of work in recent years with quarterbacks. So this is the one place that I know in football, there's this repeated motion that's really amenable to this biomechanical analysis. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on, are there other, where, what's, what's next for that particular thing in football? But then you also mentioned just like the orientation of the body or where the limbs are. That may be, valuable separately from the kind of biomechanical analysis we've seen in these other sports. So for example, I remember seeing early papers in soccer where the entire purpose of the paper was to figure out what's a methodology for figuring out what direction this guy's facing. And you look at this and you're like, why do I care about this? But of course you need that for all the downstream analysis. So it sounded like you mentioned both of these things. And how do you think, can you take us down both of those paths for what they mean for football, especially given it's not this repeated motion over and over, at least not as much as it is in some of these other sports. Yeah, certainly not as much as, as a pitcher going through his windup. But I do think that there are other interesting use cases. Just thinking about the start of the play, if a receiver is in press coverage and a corner is in press coverage on him, thinking about that initial battle of how does a receiver get out of press or how does a receiver successfully jam the receiver that he's up against would be, an interesting one and moving closer to the ball. I mean, offensive and defensive linemen uh, and their coaches never stop talking about the hand fights that happen in there. And mm-hmm. so that would be another very interesting uh, 
subject to tackle with that kind of data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I see that as um, more, so, those are probably more so in the latter camp of uh, kind of knowing where a player's limbs are rather than getting into the exact biomechanics okay. of, of emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where, what, what level of interest do you find in te- with teams with these kinds of data? Because this feels different. It, it intuitively it strikes me as something that the, the the that the traditional guys, the guys closest to the ground, would be more naturally drawn to than you know our little regressions for you know some spatial thing because it's closer to actual coaching. It's closer to the actual um, the way the guys play the game. Is that is that the right way to think about it? And all of this is to say, might you have an easier time and get traction more quickly on that frontier than the spatial frontier we've all been playing on for the last five years. Yeah, I think so. And there are some kind of like quarterback camps that are employing similar technology to what we're seeing in baseball and basketball that where you just have a quarterback coach who tends to, who's a bit more data driven and is interested in this technology who will go through the process of breaking down a quarterback's motion in this kind of way. Um, And because it's closer to the game, because it is more in the language that scouts and coaches naturally speak, I think the, we have to do less translating and whenever that's the case, the better. Right, right, right. Hey, speaking of this, um, there's kind of a current thesis in, in quarterback development, evaluation, drafting that whereas before we didn't think we could improve a quarterback's say completion percentage, Josh Allen has kind of broken that model and, and we can even drop down to some of the mechanics of it or some of the mechanisms maybe because of this kind of training, maybe because of these kinds of data. We know that Josh Allen has done some of that kind of work. Where are you on this belief? Like, do you think we can take a quarterback as raw as Anthony Richardson and turn him and will we, will they see the same kinds of success? Maybe not with that player in particular, but with that kind of player or was Josh Allen more like, you know, a freak, a unicorn, and we shouldn't be over extrapolating from that. I tend to side in favor of base rates on, on this kind of thing where Josh Allen is more of the exception and he does prove that it's possible. And so that is very interesting, but there have been other quarterbacks who have gone through similar training to what has been described him doing, and they haven't seen the same kind of jump. So Mm -hmm. We don't want to attri- we don't want to assume that the average effect of that training is a Josh Allen like jump. He is one data point of uh, quarterbacks who have gone through that kind of training. So I uh, I certainly like it's certainly possible, but I'm going to err on the side of base rates on that one. All right. Well, well, Kevin, we may be the only sh- show who likes to end on a base rate note, like. Forget the hype. We're going to go with the base rates. And so Mears has given us the perfect note to land on. We have to wrap up our time with you shamefully because it would be a lot of fun to keep on going. But Kevin, um, thank you for the time. Good to see you. Fun to talk to you. I hope to talk to you more down the road. Thanks so much, everyone. Kevin Mears, Director of Product and Strategy at Zealous Analytics, helping get their football product off the ground over the last couple of years. And a long time guy in the world of football analytics, especially in the professional space. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth and final quarter of our two hours on sports analytics. Just off the Zoom with Kevin Mears talking football analytics. We have the four of us in here for an open segments line. Adi finally swinging in. We've been looking for him all afternoon. We knew we'd miss him some. He's got some Adi Weiner things to do, man. And he's here now to do at least one of them with us. Shane Jensen is also here. Eric Brattle is here. And this is Kate Massey. Coming off the line with Kevin, there's one bit of football news. We're going to be talking about Caleb Williams more or less for the next 12 months, unless he gets hurt or has a very unexpected performance in his last year at USC. We're going to be talking about him a long time because he is right now the presumed number one draft pick next year. Eric missed our conversation last week, but comes in today with news that people are speculating that his Tampa Bay Buccaneers will tank for Caleb. What's the word here, Eric? Well, we, I mean, we essentially have no feasible quarterbacks as far as I can see. I mean, I, I mean, Baker Mayfield is reasonable enough. I mean, his QBR has declined each of the last three seasons, and he is the starting quarterback right now. Uh, Kyle Trask, uh, despite the Buck season last year, which was up and down, uh, he didn't take one snap. So he has no experience at all in the NFL. There's no third quarterback, and they didn't draft any John Wolford. They signed John Wolford. Uh, so maybe he's their third quarterback. The article yeah. yesterday suggested, all right, so maybe that was, I don't know, if, I guess it wasn't that new. But, but I, I, even without John Wolford, I kind of, I, I I mean, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I mean, it doesn't look as impressive when Tom Brady's not there, but that quarterback room is probably still, those players, who, I mean, with Baker, it's like this, it's not even the like worst quarterback room in their division, let alone <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, I, well, I guess what I'm saying is if you consider that tanking, there's going to be a lot of competition yeah. for the, in that tank, right? <laughs> I mean, Carolina and Atlanta, I, I mean, you know, honestly, there's not a great quarterback in, across that division. I think Carr probably in New Orleans is definitely number oh, one. Oh, I think but... for sure. I think, I think New Orleans is the heavy favorite for that division right now. Uh, but you're right. It's not obvious that Carr's much better than Mayfield. It's not obvious. Obviously, Carolina, I don't know if they're going to start Bryce Young or not, right? Didn't they draft Bryce Young? Yeah. 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 So maybe they start him. Maybe they don't. Um, the Falcons, I don't even know who Atlanta's number. Yeah. yeah I, I don't mean, even. Oh, no, it's Desmond Ritter. They're going, they, they're rolling with Ritter. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, uh, what were your base? I, I mean, the reason that New Orleans is a strong favorite is less about new Orleans strength, but the fact that there's, I mean, right. All three, I mean, I guess you could call all three of those teams tanking. If you just look at kind of the uncertainty of the quarterback room. I think it's also one of those things. What will happen is the bucks, like all teams, you know, they'll pl- obviously they're not intentional. I don't think the bucks are intentionally tanking, but they'll play the first six or seven games. If they're one and six, that that's one path. If they're four and three, five and two, whatever, that's another path. And there's no need to decide that now. Let's see how horrible we are. And then let's decide later. We're we're talking about it as if we see the kind of tanking in football that we do in baseball and basketball. And and we don't. And and so basketball and hockey, baseball, I don't think you really. You see see tanking in baseball, but it's more just about, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily for draft picks or something like that. It's not. Well, they, they it's not players mid-season play. more, more than any other sport. They players reallocate at mid-season from non-contenders. To okay. Contenders. All right. Well, they I rent mean, them. I mean, they make a lot of money on that. So that's the goal. Yeah. yeah. So, but, in, but in football, we just haven't seen these kinds of dynamics, at least not much. In fact, the big 
controversy a couple of seasons ago was the supposed intention from the owner of the Dolphins imposing a tanking philosophy on the coach of the Dolphins. But that stood out by exception. Do you think this is emerging? That stood out by exception because the owner actually discussed it in run. Like, I think it <laughs> happens all, you know, Do right? You? I mean, Do you? Now, this I mean, is all, we, you, you don't have to go far. That, uh, you, you don't remember the suck for luck campaign? For example, is that a fan thing or 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 an actual team ownership team management thing? Well, I mean, they definitely once they figured out Peyton Manning wasn't playing that season, did not. I I mean, right? I I guess football is a complex enough game that to actually prove there's tanking going on, I think is difficult unless the owner puts in writing. Uh, it's also I mainly mean, for you, but it'd be interesting to know how players feel. I mean, in some ways, I feel like you can play. This is maybe biased. I feel like you can play half-heartedly baseball much more comfortably than you can play half-heartedly football. Yeah, and I mean, right? And I think um, I agree. I think that's what sort of you you, you kind of see particular moves where clearly either by in- intent from the owner down, they don't want to create a culture of losing or just, you know, the coaches and players, you can't keep them from trying hard. I mean, Houston basically with, you know, kind of worked yeah. their way out of uh, the number right. one pick la- this right. last year doing that. Right. Now I do think it's a real thing at the fan level. And, and um, I think there are going to be a lot of teams. There's going to be, there's going to be, there's going to be fan fan group on fan group for the Caleb Williams lottery pick, but, we're going to be talking about that for a long time. Another sport, tennis. Eric is back as the tennis is back. Alcaraz, I, even I saw this, Alcaraz back to number one in the world, but Eric's reporting that he's already lost, not only lost, but lost to number 139. Yeah. Come on, Eric, give us the update on Alcaraz. We wanted there to be a savior of tennis. And is he is he just not bearing out, or is it too soon to say? It's I, too soon to say, I right? think he just played a ton of matches lately, and, um, you know, I was shocked by the outcome today because he had been playing extraordinarily well, including winning, I think, four out of five tournaments that he played this year. Um, I was picking him. I still am, maybe, to to win the French, although the French is now the next tournament. So now he's out of the Italian Open. Here's two ways you can argue it. One is he's played the last five weeks on clay. He's won four tournaments, no worries. And he gets rest. The other way to frame it is, can he actually win seven top matches? So that's another question. It's just unclear. Mm-hmm. That's the question. Can he win seven matches? And, and when look at Nadal come back, Nadal says he's playing the French, but he hasn't played one single match during the clay court season, really. He's been injured. All right. So a little bit of drama as we ramp up to the second major of the year and the first of the three big summer majors in tennis. Um, flipping to its country club cousin, golf. We have the second major in that sport this week. Coming back to Oak Hill and Rochester, we have the PGA Championship. Now, when I think about the PGA, the first thing I think about is that they just play a larger field. They play a much larger field than the Masters, which is the smallest field. But for years, being the dope that I am, it was always kind of a mystery. Why is it that we get kind of lesser heralded champions of the PGA than we do other majors? The simplest base rate explanation to play on what Kevin Mears ended our conversation with last quarter. The simplest explanation is just there are more players. And this is a, a more, more entrance. This is and a it, high it, it, sport. Yeah, exactly. But it's also, is it <clears throat> by the design of how players invited? I assume it's, I guess, even more kind of like recent meritocracy based or something like that. Right. I mean, a lot of the masters, 
um, or British Open info, like what proportion of the invites are kind of like, kind of, you know, based on the literal ranking of of players or whatever, right? I mean, I I feel like the PGA Championship is more kind of less kind of, there's less sort of auto kind of historical entrance or like, you know, the famous players of the world are, are not as likely to kind of be auto entrance in the PGA. That's interesting. Uh, it could be, but for the fact that they just have more spots. So that goes yeah. in the other direction. Masters is straight up invitation only. The other three have rules and qualifying um, events. Mm-hmm. Um, play your way. I mean, Shane, you could play your way to the U.S. Open if you wanted to. The PGA obviously is is about the PGA professional, so it's a little bit different. But you're right that there are differences across those sports. Adi's been doing a little homework since we since he arrived on the scene a few minutes ago. We often want to ask this question what what would it take to get 50% of the market probability? How many golfers would it take? And how does that feel to you? And so we scrape some odds and pass them along to our resident probabilist and ask Audie not only to calculate the implied probability, but also to try to rob those odds of their VIG. So it's a little bit truer look at the probabilities. Adi, what did you find? Okay, well, I'm not going to give you the findings until I give you a little bit of background. You need to be, I need to put on my professor hat and tell you how this is not so easy. The first thing you would do That's is just- Well, we gave it to you, Adi. Yeah, is to turn, to turn the odds into probabilities. That's not hard um, because all you need to do is, uh, is just in, invert them. You add one. So one, 800 is, uh, if you're plus 800, that means it's one over 900, uh, well, 100 over 900, or one ninth is the implied probability. But that's, of course, if there's no VIG. Uh, the VIG is the advantage that the casino gets or the house gets by misaligning the bets. But in this situation, it's not obvious to find out what the VIG is. You can sum up all the golfers. One of them has to win. So the sum should be, if they're actual probabilities, uh, one. They don't tend to sum to one. They yeah. tend to sum to something a bit more than that. But, a, but, but the VIG is different depending on what the size is. So the closer the number is to a half or to a certainty, the smaller the VIG, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And the closer it gets to zero, the, the bigger the VIG. So when, when something is really one in 10,000, they might give you one in 1,000. Well, that's a gigantic, gigantic VIG, but somehow people still make that one in 1,000 bet. Um, so Adi, Adi, real quickly, that uh, alone is interesting. In- and we, we're seeing some of that in recent research on sports betting, which is helpful. Um, but give us some sense of what VIG so is. I'll, I'll give you some sense. So, so the, according to the numbers you give me, Rom and, and Sheffer are, are, are plus 800 each. Um, so I treat that as a, the typical VIG is around, um, if you add them all up, the typical sum of the probabilities is around 1.2. Um, that's if you Which sum is up- a fat, fat VIG. This is the futures market and for a, the win- they winners. They are very that's- fat VIGs. It's much fatter than in a, just a simple money line bet um, where the VIG is much smaller. But so if you do that and you and I progressively make it smaller, the numbers you gave me out to Thomas and Finn now at, at plus plus uh, 2200, that doesn't even get you to 50 percent. You're really okay. about 23 percent. How much did it give you? I gave you eight, eight players. How, how did how much did they stack up to? So uh, Rom, Sheffer, Rory, Kepka, Xander, Carte, Thomas is that's uh, eight. If I'm counting correct, probably Fena would be that that's well under 50 percent. Okay. Uh, big adjust. If you don't big adjust, it's fifty percent. If you do big, big adjust, it's it's about forty three percent. Okay. So you're not going to make. Right. It. Well, that's a longer run. We often think about golf markets favoring you know little little stronger favorites with and needing five or six. And often when we're asking the intuitive question, how many would you need to settle for a 50-50 bet? It feels like five or six. And you're telling us top eight guys off the market. 
still aren't get you to 50 50. so that's interesting guys so if someone came to you and said we'll give you rom scheffler mcelroy kepka chauffeur can't lay justin thomas and tony female that's a long list that's the top eight and adi is reporting that they're only getting into the 40s at that right point. so what's going on right now if you bet on that you're that the, the odds the odds are telling you it's just over 50 percent. so so if so, but they're not, that's what they're pricing it at, but your chance of winning it is more like 43%, meaning not a good bet. <laughs> Price right. to 50, true 43 sucks. All right. So what do we, what do we think about that, that, that list anyway, the top three have been the top three for a while. Rom Scheffler and Rory. Um, Kepka was way off the mark for a long time. And of course he flew up after his performance at the masters Chauffeur has been floating around. Patrick Cantlay, definitely. Justin Thomas, people keep on waiting for him to come back. Tony Finau, is he the best player in the world who hasn't won a, a major? He was. He had that title, I think, for a while. So any thoughts on that list and the ordering of that list? These players have all been playing well lately. I mean, Rom's won a lot of tournaments lately. Uh, Scheffler's interesting because... He's not won a ton of tournaments lately, but been playing well. And we know there's some randomness. So, I mean, I, I don't take – I'll go back to something you said earlier in the show, Kate. I don't take any discreetness that he only shot 20 under par this last week and didn't win at 22 under par. I don't know. 20 under par is not so bad. And so, yeah, he didn't win, but he's been playing extremely well. I would put McElroy as way overpriced. There's nothing about his game lately that suggests he's going to play well at the PGA. Uh Kepka won a live event, I guess, if whatever that's worth. Chauflay and Cantley have been playing extremely well. Thomas hasn't been playing well. He's the defending champ, but, you know, and Finau has been playing well. Um, I, I think this is an overinflated set. I, I wouldn't take this at even 40% odds. I just, I just think it's way, way, way too high. There's just too many other good golfers. I can credit uh, another list of 8 to 10 that you've heard of that have all been playing well lately, including Jason Day, who just who's played well, really well, and just won this last week his first tournament in five years, which yeah, was remarkable. Yeah, he was a world number one. Not that. Not he was number one. Um, but you said you said there's there's too many other good golfers. I wanted you to stop and say there's just too many other golfers. Back to the large pool, large um, roster. Anybody can win a golf tournament. The PGA more than any other has that variance component. Let me name one other player. And, I, you know, I do so at the risk of um, cursing him because we keep on waiting for him to come back. But Jordan Spieth has won the other three majors and hasn't won the PGA. So the career grand slam for the career grand slam, we need him to do that. He's been competitive this year. He withdrew from the Byron Nelson, which is one of his local tournaments in the Dallas Fort Worth area just last weekend for injury. So we don't know if he's full health, but always prone for Spieth and especially with the chance to get their career grand slam. Um, all right. That was a quick tour of some of the other sports. We've covered NBA and NHL earlier on the show. What's left in front of us is baseball team. What are the highlights? What are y'all paying attention to around major league baseball? Well, Callie Jansen got his uh, 400th save of his career last week. He's now a uh, closer for the Red Sox. Um, <laughs> that that's, he's only the seventh, uh, player ever in uh, the major leagues to do it so it's a pretty exceptional Jeez. event it's not relievers still i i'm not sure it's exceptional enough to kind of you know project take him from like a, a real a player with a really great career to a hall of fame kind of level player there's a it's worth knowing that only the top three in saves all time are actually mm -hmm. in the hall of fame so seventh is 
down there. But anyway, who are, the, who are those top three, by the way? Rivera, Hoffman. Oh, no, uh, Rivera. I think now. Eckersley? Is it Eckersley? No, 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 no. Eckersley is in the Hall of Fame, but Eckersley had 200 saves and 100 wins, which is why he's in the Hall of Fame. It's definitely uh, Rivera and Hoffman. I'm not sure who number three is, but they're yeah, definitely the top two. So let me comment about the about the, the closer because it's interesting. First of all, the Yankees don't even have a closer this year, um, which it's, it's, it's supposed to be analytically kind of um, the right thing. Why? Because the closer is more about the role. Then the it's like the running back of um, of, of baseball. So anybody can do it. You just just get in there and do it. And that turns out to really not be true, as as Rivera kind of proved. Um, someone who can do it for twenty years and really reliably do it is actually worth quite a bit. And I would argue. Yeah, I that- mean, you Yankees fans, I think, are mostly just spoiled yeah. with having a very reliable, defined closer situation. Like you, you, what, what, what you're talking about right now with this more closer committee is what you do when you don't have good closers. Have every, closer. every other team does it all the time. Exactly. But, but usually, but even the teams that all do it and they all do it, they all typically have a designated closer. That, that job just doesn't stay for long. You, you, you just keep it for a couple of years and then you go to another team or, or you, mm-hmm. you're out of the league. It's, it's a very interesting job. And, and uh, just even valuing what a reliever is worth is something that's not easy to do. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's sort of like, you know, to a certain extent, you know, people like Kimbrell or Jansen, I mean, the reason we would call this an incredibly good career in part is because to have a longevity in this particular position is incredibly rare. A, you're thrown really hard and prone to injury. And B, you know, to, to, to have, basically it's, it's, it's a proxy for a team finding you. Exactly. You know, having, having confidence in you as a closer for like a – 10, 12 years. Yeah, they're happy to yank you out of there. Yeah, they'll yank you right out of there if they can find find another guy that can throw 97 out of the bullpen. And what Mariano did was, of course, like a whole next level above that. Yep, but we're talking about the American League East, which we never seem to. I think every team is is not only above 500, but well above 500. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, no. If you look at kind of – I think if you rank order the American League East and the American League Central – like, like the way it appears actually on my, you know, the MLB standings, it just keeps going down. Like, like you, it, it's in the proper order. Appearing below the AL East in the, on the page. Well, let's just ask, is there any chance all five teams in the AL East end up 500 or above? There's no Absolutely. chance, right? No, it, could it could happen. It could happen. Given how happen. often they play each other. Given Not as often horrible. as they used to. Given how horrible the Oakland A's are and the Kansas City Royals and all these other teams in the other two divisions, absorbing all the losses. And And a lot of NL, they could beat up. Basically, um, the commonality of the schedule is is definitely within division is, is less than it used to be. Adi, we always talk about the, the maximum. Right yep. now, the Oakland A's are on track to win 34 games, mm-hmm. which would obviously be the all-time worst record ever. Um, yeah. I think the amazing, the 62 Mets, I think, won 40. Um, right. And so, I mean, you're, you're talking modern baseball, right? Modern baseball, that, yeah. There's that Cleveland Spiders team or whatever. that <laughs> was right, like, well, they, they were like 20 and 134 in 1899. Okay, well, modern Shane baseball. Bringing it. <laughs> modern baseball. I've been tracking the Oakland Athletics this year. I'm very excited about their terribleness. <laughs> So, Adi, how much mean reversion the other way are you going for, and what are you predicting for their wins? Do they get to 50? No. Uh, I, I say high 40s. 
Okay. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Not even, not even, what, what, what's your argument for that? Because it's, it, of the mean, it's just it's so, strong. but what if, what if this is more strategically chosen and structural than just chance? Uh, yeah, you know, I think young players in baseball, um, they're just, I, I think a, a replacement level team is really what you should be looking at. And a replacement level team should be winning more than 40 games. So but let me just put a little bit extra nuance on the, the nature of how terrible they are. This Oakland <laughs> athletic team is historically bad with pitching. They've allowed 316 runs in 42 games, which is seven and a half runs allowed per game. Right. So if they keep doing that, they're going to have the a historically just bad gonna regress Let's let's let's. So up. yeah, what would you regress that to? And just for context, if you want, like the '96 uh, tie, like this up. I think the '96 Tigers had six and a half or six point eight runs per game. There would be under seven. I would regress it down to okay. between six and a half. But still, that like if if, if that's if a I thousand you, runs. If I told you. That a team gave up runs of that amount of runs allowed, and I, we we gave them replacement level hitting. Mm-hmm. Well, how many wins would that be? Not many. Yeah, it probably wouldn't get you. To bad team it would, for them it to wouldn't fit. get you to fifty, I think, or anything like that. Yeah, I think be, so. Yeah. Did y'all see the news today that they got approval for the new site in Las Vegas on the Strip? I think it's part yeah. of one of the casinos there. Uh, th- there's more hurdles to clear, but it, it sounds like they might put a thirty thousand person ballpark. On the strip in Las Vegas, I think it's the Venetian. It, yeah. It'd be a pretty extraordinary place to drop a major league baseball team, um, and we're one step closer to it. All right, guys, that has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball here. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it here on SiriusXM every week for the whole crew: Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradle. This has been Cade Massey. Many thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man. Many thanks to Dion Simpkins the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.